culture fit is a term that is used to describe engineers that have the right personality for a given company. In the hiring process, lack of culture fit is a term that's often used to turn away engineers who are good enough at coding, but just don't seem right for the company. As today's guest Amon Bartram says, lack of culture fit usually means lack of enthusiasm for what a company does. Amon is the co-founder of TripleByte, a company that is debugging the interviewing process. TripleByte has interviewed thousands of engineers and is discovering which aspects of the current hiring process make sense and which are based on superstition or just raw tradition. We had a great conversation about what culture really means and how to hire effectively. I really enjoyed this episode with Amon, and I hope you do too. If you want to find our older episodes, the episodes of Software Engineering Daily that have been really popular, you can find our greatest hits feed in iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. You can also find lots of other topic feeds like business and blockchain and JavaScript and machine learning. These are specific categorized feeds in case you find our main feed to be too overwhelming with too many different episodes. You can break up your Software Engineering Daily world into different partitions. So you can find more details about that in the show notes today, and we'd love to hear your feedback and anything else that we can do to improve Software Engineering Daily. You can email me, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. I hope you like this episode. Amon Bartram is the co-founder of TripleByte. He's joining the show for the third time. Amon, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hello, thank you for having me. Today we're going to talk about culture fit, which is a topic that has been discussed a lot in software engineering circles. I want to start by explaining a little bit about who you are and what you do around TripleByte. People who don't know you, you know, they might not know this stuff. So, you know, TripleByte is a platform for helping companies do better hiring. So, Talk a little bit about what TripleByte does just for people who have not heard of the product before and explain how the hiring process is inefficient and what TripleByte is doing to try to improve that. Sure. So basically, we're a company and we help engineers find jobs at, at, at startups at other companies. And so what we do is engineers apply to us, we interview them. And then we introduce them to uh, about 200 you know, tech companies, uh, including Apple, uh, Facebook, Dropbox, Stripe, um, all the way down through you know, crews working on self-driving cars, and then to sort of tiny startups that are just a few months old out of, out of Y Combinator. And sort of what we can do is because we sort of do interviewing for all of those companies, we're able to do a much better job matching candidates with companies. So what we found is that the, the attributes that different companies look for actually vary pretty significantly, but they don't have a great way of sort of telling applicants this. And so what they have to do is just reject everyone who, you know, they interview who doesn't have these specific skills that they're looking for. And often they're not even aware exactly that, you know, to, to the extent to which they differ from other companies. So company A might think that, you know, we really care about, you know, complexity analysis and anyone who applies who can't talk, you know, in depth about, you know, amortized time complexity isn't a good engineer. And they don't realize that there are, you know, Dozens of other companies out there that will very happily hire very you know great people who you know maybe aren't super solid on on complexity analysis, mm-hmm. and so what we can do is basically match people based on all those different strengths. And so what we see then is that after we do that matching, the uh, the offer rate at the at, at the companies goes up by about two uh, x. So candidates who go through us get offers after about uh, twice as many interviews as general applicants to those same companies. For the engineers, this is really useful. To, so what you do is you centralize the hiring process. So you're a company that focuses on the hiring process. And the advantage of getting all of those, like of have, building a company entirely around hiring, where in, as in the past, every individual company was doing its hiring alone, you know, figuring, you know, at your, you're a cloud services company and you also have to figure out hiring that that has inefficiencies for both the company and for the engineers that are going through the hiring process. So yeah. for the engineers that are going through the hiring process, you know, if you're applying for jobs, you typically have some set of requirements that you want out of your job. 
But for most people, it's not like I want to work specifically at Stripe or I want to work specifically at Amazon. Yep. I've got some set of things that I want to be matched with a company. It's like an online dating site almost. You know, you don't you don't go after one. I mean, some people go after one specific yep. person, but you would rather go into this pool <laughs> and be matched with somebody based on characteristics. And so that so it's great for the engineers and for the companies. What you're saying is because you have because you focus on hiring so much, you have a lot of insight into some of the proclivities towards error that certain companies had. For example, unconscious biases, like figuring out what are the unconscious biases that occur widely in the hiring process is something that you're well suited to because you see so many different data points. So over time, you can grind out these biases that are are ever present. What are some of those unconscious biases that affect the hiring process? Well, uh, you know, I, I think the top of that list is is, is just credentials, right? So someone, uh, you know, we actually have so so we you know we do all our assessment background blind, so we don't know who, you know what the candidate's background is when when, when we you know evaluate their skills. And what we see is that imbalance, sort of credentials, you know, do correlate the way you might expect, right? So people who you know graduate from MIT as a group you know, are, are better programmers than people who graduated from unknown state school. But, you know, vastly more people graduated from unknown state school than graduated from MIT. And so, you know, if you, you know, just say, okay, we're going to only talk to people who, who, who graduated from MIT, you, you end up missing really the majority of excellent programmers. And yet we see that that bias ends up sort of infecting the process. And so, you know, for a given level of performance, companies are much more likely to hire someone if they have sort of a, a name brand company or a name brand school on their resume. And so I think I think one of the biggest ones that we specialized in is just, you know, finding and helping people who are great programmers who maybe, you know, have, you know, because of because of where they work in the country, maybe they've they've you know gone and worked at a defense contractor in in you know visual basic, say. <laughs> and you know, believe it or not, there are excellent programmers who work for defense contracts in visual basic. You know, we can find those people and, and, and then sort of give them a leg up over the screening process to an interview at you know Facebook or Stripe or companies that that would not have spoken to them if they didn't have sort of our, our validation. This blindness that you're talking about, the background blindness, are you saying you don't look at resumes, you don't look at background at all? Is there any screening process for people who come through the door? Uh, yeah, so this, the, the, the first step in our process is sort of an automated programming quiz. But no, we do, when we do the interview with a candidate, we do not know, we, don't, we, don't, we know their name because it pops up on the screen, but we don't know, we don't know their, if they've worked for you know, 20 years or <laughs> three months. We don't know, you know what school they went to. We know none of that. Was that that wasn't the process at the beginning, was it? I mean, you you did you realize over time that oh, actually, looking at a resume actually just it causes bias that confounds things, and you actually just want to test people for can they program? I know that's actually that, that has been a process from the beginning. Um, hmm. there, there's there's a bunch of sort of if you look if you look at the research out there on the efficacy of resume screens, it's it's pretty abysmal. <laughs> so we had sort of read that going in, and we decided to try to come up with a process to directly measure skill. And so we, we decided to kind of to force ourselves to get better at that, to totally cut off access to the candidate's backgrounds and say, okay, like how, like if we, if we, if going in, we know nothing about a candidate, you know, what's, what's the most accurate way to determine if they're a skilled programmer? You write about these high signal and low signal questions. So once somebody is in the door for an interview and you're at, you're interviewing them, there are questions that can provide a high signal as to whether this person would be a good engineer, engineering hire. There are also low signal questions where you're going to ask them a question and whether or not they answer it correctly, it's going to have no impact on whether they'll be a good engineering hire. Can you give an example of each of these types of questions? Sure. It, I guess I'll, I'll talk in the technical realm for now. I know we're going to be talking more about, about culture fit in a, in a minute. But so first, it depends a lot on what the company is looking for. Um, I, th I think so, so companies do look for very different skills. And so, for example, a company may have a thesis that they want to hire people who are very strong at academics. And if that's their thesis, right, asking that question, you know, I guess probably makes sense. Right. Now, whether that whether candidates need to be very academic to be to be productive engineers is debatable. But a company may have a reasonable cultural desire to hire academic engineers. So, so I'm going to sort of try to just describe it in a way that doesn't involve the actual content of the question. And I think a great sort of rule of thumb is questions that require sort of a single leap of insight are very bad questions. And that's just because that ends up being extremely noisy. 
And so an example of a question like that, um, this is the real question that you get out there sometimes, is you know, the, the question is, imagine you know, you're walking up a flight of stairs and you, at every step, you, you're going to take a small step up, one, you know, up one, one step of the stairs or a large step up two steps. And the question is, imagine you're on the nth you know, step of the flight of stairs. How many unique paths are there, you know, could you have taken from the bottom to arrive on the nth step? <laughs> and, you know, if you, if you think about it, it ends up that, that, that the answer is the Fibonacci sequence. <laughs> and you can, you can prove that to yourself, and it's kind of a cool observation. But, it, you know, it's, if, if you ask Kenneth that question, you know, some people are going to know the answer. And then they might just say it. Other people might know the answer, and they'll, they'll sort of pretend to reason it through and make it look like they're really smart and figured it out. Um, others might get flustered and feel frustrated and not come up with the answer. And as the interviewer, there's very little you can do to sort of help. If you tell someone, hey, it's a Fibonacci sequence, right? Suddenly you've given it away and there's no signal there. A different question that someone might ask, you know, is, I don't know, let's say, let's, let's keep, keep it academic here. Let's, let's say matrix multiplication, right? Please write a function that takes two matrices and, and, and produces the answer. Right, so it's a, there's a pretty, you know, that's a somewhat involved process. You know, knowing the answer shows some, you know, familiar, familiar with linear algebra, but it still is fundamentally a, a series of steps that can be thought through. And if a candidate gets stuck on one step, you can give them a little bit of clue to help them move forward, but and they can still sort of demonstrate, you know, get get past that point and demonstrate competence later on. And so I think, you know, the second question is far better because there's there's sort of you can sort of measure how the candidate, you know, is moving through the process and, you know. Deal with some of the noise people get stuck by giving us some clues and not totally invalidate the question. Mm -hmm. And so the basic rule of thumb I'd like to think about is questions that that can be given away. So a question where you have to, as as the interviewer, you have to worry: Did someone give away this question to the candidate ahead of time? So if if if, if that's possible, right? If there's some single, you know, small thing of information, small, you know, some few 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 sentences they could have been told that's going to help them answer the question. I think it's probably a bad question. A better question is a question where the answer to the question is, you know, 45 minutes of programming. And so there's very little that, they, that could have been done short of practicing the programming ahead of time to give them an advantage. Hmm. So I think at this point, most of the listeners understand the process of triple byte. A bunch of engineers come through the door, you interview them, you figure out how to match them with companies. There's a lot of complexity to this process, and we've attacked discussing that in previous episodes where you've been on the show so people can listen back to those. So let's zoom in on culture fit because this is, for anybody who's done a number of engineering interviews or a lot of engineering interviews, you've probably been rejected once or twice for something, whether you know it or not, that was internally described at that company that rejected you as cultural fit. How What does that term mean or what do companies perceive it to mean when i say to somebody else i didn't hire this person because of cultural fit what is the unspoken language that's going on there what does that term actually yeah. mean that, that is an excellent question so it that's it's, it's, it's a thing that we've kind of butted our heads with a bunch at triple byte uh, because we do pretty extensive technical screening and so you know when candidates who go through our process you know are rejected do fail interviews very often that it's, it's for culture fit reasons um, and so sort of you know, responding to that, we went back and interviewed all the companies extensively about what they, what they look for. And what we, what we observed is that it's an extremely overloaded term. It doesn't mean any one thing. So it means sort of the whole grab bag of, of non-technical reasons that a, a company might want to reject a candidate. So anything from, you know, we thought they were arrogant, we thought they were an asshole. You know, to you know, bias stuff, right? We we <laughs> we want to hire white male programmers, and this person wasn't a white male. <laughs> and obviously, no one actually says that. But but you know, when that kind of stuff it comes into the picture, you know, it's 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 under the guise of culture fit. And then two sort of very specific stuff. To you know, this company has you know, we're a bank, and we need programmers who care a lot about security and are very security minded. And this person was seemed like a great programmer, but they weren't. You know, it seemed like they were going to sort of move fast and break things rather than think deeply about security. But the interesting thing is that companies themselves aren't aren't very crisp about the differences. It's for them, it's sort of this, this it's a catch-all phrase that's often pretty poorly defined. Um, and so I think it's quite useful to dig into it and break it apart into its different parts and talk about each of them separately. Right. Triple Byte has a post on the blog, the Triple Byte blog, about how to succeed at conventional engineering interviews uh, you you know you this in this post you basically say you know tri triple byte we're trying to change the interviewing process but in most 
job interviews, you're going to have to deal with this process if you're an engineer. And there are some easy tips that you can follow that will make this process a lot easier. Even though it's stupid and it's stupid to have to adhere to it, that's the way that things work. And the number one piece of advice you have is not around learning any specific algorithms or going on career cup and training yourself. It's actually be enthusiastic. It's like that's the number one piece of advice. You imply that the companies that reject a person for cultural fit, nine times out of ten, that actually means that person does not have enthusiasm for what the company does. And that actually, like, if you want to classify that as cultural cultural fit, that almost sounds like a characteristic of humanity as a culture. It's <laughs> not even like the specific company. It's just like, why would you want to hire somebody who's not enthusiastic? You just simply yeah. would not want to do that. Yeah, I think I think from the point of view of a of a you know engineer, a, a, you know, applying to companies and trying to figure out how you can pass more culture fit interviews, I think the number one piece of advice is is definitely be enthusiastic, right? And so you know, and, and sort of more precisely, research the company ahead of time and come up with a list of questions that that you things you are excited about right, that you can ask them about to show your excitement. And that screen, it seems a little bit arbitrary. But it actually, it actually makes a fair amount of sense, right? As you know, as, well, there, there's a bunch of flaws with it. But as a company, like you totally do want to hire people who are excited about what you do. I, th I think that's actually sort of, you know, a positive aspect of culture fit is that it's recognizing that there are things other than sort of just flashy technical brilliance that matter. Mm -hmm. um, and so for, you know, for example, imagine as a hiring manager, right? You have two candidates. Candidate A is technically brilliant. Any, you know, logic problem you give them, you know, they will, they will crush in a second and they can, you know, write the hardest algorithms you can come up with, you know, very well. But they're, you know, a little lazy and unfriendly. And, you know, if they join your company, they're, they'll, they'll, they'll do their job, but they'll probably, you know, work nine to five and, you know, not answer their email, you know, off hours and not care about the company. Right. And a candidate two is a solid programmer. Right. They're, they're pretty good. You know, there's some things, there's some some math they're not up on that the other candidate is, but they care a lot about what your company does, and they you know they find it deeply exciting, and they have just this great you know work ethic. You know, if, if maybe they don't you know if they don't know the answer to a problem, they're going to bang their head against it and you know read books and read Wikipedia and you know not sleep until they have the answer, right? And you know of those two candidates, the second one is almost certainly the better employee at every company, and I think anyone who has ever been a hiring manager can sort of can identify with that. So, 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 you know, part of it is acknowledging that there are skills outside of, of technical brilliance that matter. The difficulty then is coming up with how do you actually measure those skills in a way that's where you're not being sort of led astray by confounding factors. And the way that this connects to the ambiguity of the term cultural fit, is cultural fit actually just code for things that are universally true? Like you universally want somebody who is enthusiastic but maybe you don't know how to say that after a technical interview. Like you can't, you can't, you know, after you have a technical interview and you're, you're, you know, somebody, a candidate has come into your office and they've gone through a technical interview and, you know, everybody's like, well, you know, they got the question right, uh, but something bugs me. I don't know if he's a good cultural fit or she's a good cultural fit. Is this just code for things that are universally true that we don't know how to articulate? Yeah, I think I think it's useful to break culture fit down into three parts. Part one, I would say, is soft skills. So it's non-technical skills that basically everyone cares about, right? So communication ability, ability to work on a team, general positive attitude, and excitement about about what the company does. And those are, I think, just what you said. Those those are skills that you know. Everyone universe non-technical skills that basically everyone wants that often get 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 bundled under 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 cultural fit. Part two that I think it's useful to separate. Part two is specific sort of intentional choices the company makes about what traits and what what types of employees they want to have. And so this is, for example, you know, a company might decide that you know it, it wants to be a very data-driven company, and it really wants to be, it wants some, you know most of its employees to believe in data-driven decision making. And so it's going to set this sort of, you know, you know, filter for who it hires, that it wants to sort of hire people who are outliers on believing that the right way to solve a problem is to gather data, look at the data and make a decision, as opposed to approaching it from sort of a product angle or a sort of a, you know, feel angle. 
and so you know that 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 that's an example. You know, if you look look if you look at the you know out there at companies, you know, we have uh, you know Facebook with their you know their famous I guess they've dropped it out, but their famous early motto of move fast and break things. Right. You can view that as sort of a specific intentional choice that they want to bias toward sort of, you know, productive hackers as opposed to other approaches to engineering. You know, Stripe is an example. This is, this is a little bit less well known, but Stripe has a particular focus on friendliness to a degree much further than basically any other company. Right. So, so Stripe, mm. Stripe wants to be an extremely friendly, compassionate place. And, you know, they will reject people who everyone else would hire uh, just because they're, you know, only, a, you know, a six out of 10 from this rather than an eight out of 10. You know, I, I went to Stripe and I did three interviews there in a day one time and it, or well, I guess I did two interviews. I did another one remotely, but I got a good picture of the company. I interfaced with five or six people there in a day. Friendliness is certainly a characteristic that I would use to describe all of them. And, <laughs> and you know, what I'll say about that, Stripe, that was an, an incredibly warm and uh, so there's something I can't put my finger on that made me really enjoy the visit to their office. And I guess you could encapsulate it as friendliness. It sounds like an underrated or slash underappreciated uh, element of that company. Yeah, uh, they're, they're great people. <laughs> Yeah, interesting. And I mean, because, uh, you know, certainly one of the really rising stars, you know, people compare it to Amazon, but that's it's, it's, it's so fascinating. I mean, how, so, okay, but that's, you know, now you're talking about differentiating characteristics of these big companies. I did I did a show recently with uh, a guy from Google who had been there from, from the early days. And, you know, he was talking about how, like, I think... This is like move fast and break things was not something that was a characteristic of Google. Like Google is like figure out, you know, the example he gave was if there's a problem with the Linux kernel that's causing your Hadoop job to not run, you don't write a script that makes the Hadoop job run properly. You fix the kernel bug. And like at Facebook, it would be like, Figure out some freaking system that runs correctly. Make sure you can do it in three hours. Break out the duct tape. Um, you know, it is a totally, yep. total cultural difference. So yep. there is certain things that are cultural fit that are specific to companies that are not BS. Yes, and then I think the third. I want to so, so the third. Those are the third category of things I think that fall into culture. Fit is the category that just is <laughs> is BS for lack of a better phrase. Uh, and this is the pattern matching. Right. So it's not, you know, so ignoring any of the first two categories, so soft skills and then specific intentional traits a company wants to have, just does this candidate feel like a good engineer I've met in the past or do they feel like someone I want to be a friend, sort of friends with? And this is where you see, so uh, Laszlo Bach, the ex-VP of people mm-hmm. at Google, mm-hmm. um, you know, has written about, about sort of research showing that this is actually looking at non-technical so interviews for non-engineers, but that, that the decisions in most non-technical interviews are made in the first 30 seconds, right? And so that's, that's what you're seeing just, does this person, you know, gut call, feel he's got like... got data around that? Sorry, uh, does, does he cite data for that? Yeah, he's, he cites a, a, a paper. Wow. It's, yeah, it's, 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 to be clear, it's, it's not looking at programming interviews. It's, it's okay. looking at uh, uh, different interviews. But that's sort of the, the bad pattern matching aspect. Where, and and that, that's where sort of the worst, you know, reinforcing, you know, biases against people who don't look like programming we've seen in the past uh, uh, creep in. Do you, do you believe that? Do you think that happens in, in engineering interviews where most of them are decided in the first 30 seconds? I think engineering, well, engineering, so yes, in culture, yes, in the culture fit component. I think no in technical component. So so we're we're lucky in that most engineering interviews are actual skill assessments. And in skill assessments there's an you know there's 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 a real yardstick for a skill being measured for all the flaws that can come into play, you know, someone you may think someone looks stupid but then if they if they brilliantly solve your problem, you know, that <laughs> yeah. will change your your mind. <laughs> The, the, the culture fit section kind of doesn't have that. There's not really a, a sort of a, a tangible output to be measured. And so in that case, yes, I believe it. I mean, I, th- I think if you, if you watch yourself, you know, if, if you really sort of introspect and look at your own de- you know, decision-making process when you're trying to you know, do an interview for a, you know, for a sales role or something, I think you'll notice that you know, you know, not, not all the time, but a pretty high percentage of the time, the, you know, the, 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 the thing you're thinking 30 seconds in is what you're going to think at the end. Well, you know, it's funny... I think there have been so many times out of all the engineers I've interacted with where I just think like, you know, my first impression of this person, like this person is so dopey and it's like so stupid and 
he's always eating that stupid sandwich. (laughs) This person is obviously an idiot. And then I interact with them on the level of code or like I talk to them about some systems problem and then and they just like say oh yeah it's you know it's just it's this this is how you solve it and i'm like oh wow that's that's actually brilliant and my opinion will totally change on yep. a dime based off of some technical confirmation i would actually say that most of the engineers that i encounter the longer the time i spend with them the more they have a chance to expose that side of themselves where they're really smart about something and my opinion of them improves over time. I don't know if there's if you have any yeah. correlation with that in your own experience. Yeah, I think there is actually. So we've inter- so so just one observation. So, so technical interviews are it's way easier to be the interviewer than to be the the, the interviewee, the candidate. You know the question ahead of time. You've, you've you've been able to think about it, and it's pretty easy to trick yourself into thinking that you would have done better on the question than you actually probably would. You know the reality. Is that when you, when the job's open, people are going to apply, and many of them are going to be bad. So you're, you're, you're like you do. It's not. It has to happen. You need. Yeah, you, know, you do. Like you do need to reject people. But it's good to stay humble and realize that, you know, there is a super high, you know, uh, false negative rate. It's very, you know, it, it it is relatively easy to make a smart person look stupid by asking them a question, you know, they, that they haven't thought about. And you know, one thing that that experiment we did at Trailbyte was to was to do take home projects. Uh, so this was opt-ins. People could do both a regular interview and then also a a longer take-home project. And looking at the difference in quality between the work people did, you know, you know, during you know an hour or two when they were on the spot versus when they had their you know time to to think about it was really quite enlightening. Just people who we had written off as bad mm-hmm. would then turn around and like do really you know really impressive professional level work. Mm. Yeah, and I feel. I think some people who who are on the interviewing side of things, they're interviewing a, a candidate. There's so much power in that role. Yeah. Just like the craving to make somebody slip on the banana peel and just like, you know, oops, oh, well, you know, you couldn't figure out it was a Fibonacci yep. sequence in the stair stepping. And I'm sorry, you know, I know you flew here from Montana, but, uh, you know, we're going to have to send you home. You know, I hope you had a good time visiting the Bay Area, and uh, come back when you're come back when you're when you're a grown up. And it's like people just want to reject. And I think that if there's sort of one, I can still down to one statement that I think is helpful as an interviewer is that you're looking for reasons to say yes rather than reasons to say no. Like it, it, <laughs> you want you want to try to be on the side of the person and try to find a reason to say they're good rather than a reason to say they're bad. Mm. So debugging. Debugging this process seems like very much a psychological process. And, you know, I was looking at some into the process and you said there's there's one quote, you track what the interviewer is thinking every five minutes throughout the interview. What does that mean? Like, how do you do that? Uh, so we're, we're doing our interviews over uh, Google Hangouts. And so we have a, a custom Chrome extension that integrates with Hangout page. And uh, so we have, you know, grading evaluation tools that that overlay. And so every five minutes... There's just a pop-up that asks us for our current sentiment, and this is this is sort of you know that that's actually it's actually not used in the decision-making process. So we found that sort of much more concrete measures of you know progress on a problem and, and things like that, I mean like sort of what path they took through a problem, are much better predictors of how they'll do on other interviews at companies. But kind of to measure that actually because we were, the motivation for that was interest was 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 the Laszlo Bach data. So mm-hmm. we were curious to see if it was true that you know basically how our uh, our, our impression was changing. Um, you, and what you, we found is what I said earlier, that the technical, when asking technical questions, the impression actually does change quite a lot over time. Um, and that when, when asking non-technical questions, less so. When you put in a check like that, it seems important because the interviewer realizes they are being examined on a certain axis. And that might cause them to consciously counteract that bias. Like they might realize, oh, you know, I'm being graded or I'm, my sentiment is being measured every five minutes throughout the interview, maybe I should be more open to changing my sentiment. So maybe there's some like Heisenberg uncertainty, <laughs> like a beneficial Heisenberg uncertainty principle thing that's happening there. Yeah, I think I think sort of a, a similar idea, right? What the best approach to combating bias in interviews appears to be breaking down the skills you're looking for and being clear about what they are and giving people a clear sort of, you know, so, so rather than saying, you know, in your gut, does this person feel good? Saying, like, your goal is to judge, you know, algorithmic thinking. 
here's the question, and you know, rate their algorithm thinking on, on a scale from you know one to ten. And that appears to produce a much less. So doing that, you know, in, on multiple axes and then summing the result appears to produce a much less biased measure of of skill. And so this actually gets back to what. So what I, I think the solution to the to the sort of uncertainty and bias, particularly in culture fit screening, is for companies to be very precise about exactly what they're measuring, what they mean by culture fit. And so for companies to say, okay, like we care a lot about soft skills, right? Soft skills, I actually think it's my personal opinion that soft skills are undervalued relative to technical brilliance in interviews. But that, that's partly because they're, they're hard, to, hard to measure crisply. Um, but soft skills matter immensely. So communication right. ability, teamwork. How underrated, how underrated do you think they are? Oh, I don't, I'm not sure what the scale is to answer that question, <laughs> but I think it's plausible that, so basically, okay. So companies, you know, bad hires are terrible. They're very expensive to a company. And so companies end up heavily biasing their process toward, you know, potentially rejecting good people in order to try to avoid hiring bad people. And they usually do that mostly on technical axes, on technical axis. And I think that's probably wrong. I think you could probably cut back, you know, a good, you know, five, 10 percentage points on technical axis and then sort of make up for the difference, right? So you're still passing the same number of people on the culture, on, I'm sorry, <laughs> on the uh, soft skill access, and you'll probably get a you know, significantly lower uh, bad hire rate. Well, if you were Stripe, you could probably just check people for friendliness and then say like, okay, you're friend, you've met the friendly quota, and then you bring them in the door, and Stripe has so many different roles, whether it's engineering or customers or like technical customer success, <laughs> so many different roles, you could just do the job matching after they pass the test for friendliness, arguably. Yeah, I, I think Stripe is an example of, of a company that, that, that does this very well. I, I agree a lot with the, the, the approach that they take. And then also, you know, being precise about, so the second category, right? So the specific traits that, that, that you want to look for at your company. So in Stripe's case, that's friendliness. Just being, being really upfront about that. A really interesting question, actually, I'm curious to hear your opinion, is to what extent, to what extent that's a good idea? Right, so we have all these examples of successful companies that have sort of theses about who they want to hire. So clearly having that thesis is not a, you know, an obstacle to success. But a really interesting question is whether it's actually helpful. And I'm, I'm not sure what I think. Because for, you know, for all the companies we listed, there are plenty more that are very successful that, as far as I can tell, don't have a specific thesis. Right? Mm -hmm. So like the, the, uh, the starting point being, you know, it's really hard to find good people. So I want to hire all the good people I can, I, I can find, right? So any, anyone who's a smart and a good programmer and has like reasonable soft skills is a great, you know, is a, sounds like a great employee. And that's, that actually is the position of the majority of companies we've spoken to. So, so most companies, yeah. Most companies don't know what their own DNA is. Like they don't know what is a good person at this company. Well, that, that, that's the negative phrasing of it, hmm. right? The negative phrasing is they don't know their own DNA. The positive phrasing is what they care about is, you know, technical ability and soft skills and they've you know not just you know it's really hard to find good people and so they've decided to not further narrow the field by saying you know we only want you know people who are extreme outliers and friendliness or we only want people who are, who are extreme outliers on academic ability or you know whatever it is and i'm actually up in the air about about what i think the best strategy is well you know my my perspective is basically if you've got a if your company has a good product you should just like People who come through the door that either they have a good resume or they show a lot of enthusiasm, you let them through the door, and I, this this is, doesn't work for Triple Byte probably, but you let them design their own hiring process, and you just say to them, "Hey, tell me like how should I rate you right now?" Right? Like, give me <laughs> because you know I some really good hiring advice that I read. This is on Quora from a guy named Oren Hoffman, who he writes a lot about startups and hiring and building businesses. And he writes a lot of stuff that's really interesting. But you know, he, one of the things he always says is you hire for, for strength, not for lack of weakness. And I think a lot of the what the engineering hiring processes do is they screen for a lack of weakness, or they, sorry, they screen yep. for weaknesses. Like they're looking to detect your weaknesses. And like some people have really weird strengths. And if yep. they were to be able to expose those strengths in the hiring process, you'd be like, oh my God, you would be perfect for like X random yeah. part of our company that we do. And like companies are getting so weird. Like there are so many niche companies doing very niche things because of the way that the internet allows for you to scale up even the most niche products because you can find all of your customers for those super niche products. So if you've got a niche role in a niche company, 
then why would you have a general or if you've got a bunch of niche roles in a niche yep. company why would you have a a hiring process that's like peanut butter like yep. super generalized so i mean i realize it's not a super like scalable or recipe style way to do hiring but i think the best way to do hiring is like call somebody up strike up a conversation with them be like okay what are you good at like what are you going to come in and do yep I know. I think I think that actually is. I, th I think that meshes pretty well with what we're trying to do, right? So what we've, uh, you know, that that's you know pretty much what we're trying to do is you know solve that problem by getting better ourselves at identifying all those different niche uh, strengths. So the problem, so there's there's sort of these, if you will, sort of like conflicting imperatives here. So the problem as a company, the problem with taking that approach and literally saying, you know letting each candidate design their own process, that then, that then you know, your process becomes totally non-standardized. And so let's say, you know, I'm, I'm, I have a role, I'm looking at three candidates, you know, I ask them all, you know, how they want to be evaluated and candidate one, you know, you know, is great at computer graphics and they want to produce a demo for me uh, that's doing some, you know, fun thing and, you know, in the browser. And, you know, candidate two is, you know, it's strong something else, right? So you get these three totally different things and, you have three different performances on three totally different axes. How do you decide? And how do you decide in a way that's fair? So, so basically, if you then, you know, the, the version of just throw them all into a, into it, you know, into a, you know, bucket and talk about it and decide ends up being a gut call, and that gut call ends up being the opportunity for a, a lot of the problematic bias to seep back in. And so, the, the, you know, the issue is, you know, you want to give each candidate the option to, you know, show the thing they're strongest on. Like I totally agree that strengths are what matter, not not you know, not not lack of weakness. Problem is. How do you do that in a repeatable, standardized way that's taking the sort of the problematic bias out of the decision? And also, a second problem with that is that communication ability. If you give people a total freeform interview, often salesmanship and communication ability on their part ends up dominating the actual technical ability. So if you have people talking about work they did in the past, often being able to pitch that work effectively is influences your, your, your perception more than how technically impressive the work actually was. Well, isn't that the ultimate yeah. soft skill? It is, yeah. So if you're trying to assess soft skills, then, then sure. But if you, if you believe that, that both things matter and that, and that like the, you know, the, the hard skill matters as well, then you, like you, also, you, know, you, want, you want to measure those two things. Hmm. And so I, th I think the solution is to not have the interviews be totally freeform, but to have a bunch of different approaches, right? So like different tracks. And so, you know, you have, you know, you know, a way that you're, you know, you're interviewing people who are, you know, very productive product focused and a way you're interviewing people who are, you know, very product and mobile developers and a way you're interviewing people who are very systemy and, and then having, you know, enough, enough volume on all those tracks that within each of those tracks, the process is still standardized. And that's, I guess I'm yeah, <laughs> pivoting to a pitch here, but that's, that's kind of what, you know, because we're doing hiring for hundreds of companies, we have enough volume that we're able to do that in a way that all but the biggest companies are not able to themselves. Hmm. Okay. You're talking about this idea of like where you you let's say you interview like five to ten mobile engineers over the, like if you're a company that's hiring a mobile engineer, the way you're kind of presenting it is okay. You interview five or ten mobile engineers and then you get in a room and you discuss them and you pick the best one from that group of five or ten. But my experience is that actually what happens is it's a, more of a serial process and you encounter one person and you interview them and then you say okay are they better than the average or are they going to be positive ROI enough and then you say meh you know they're not and you move on to the next one is it is it more of a serial process or is it more like like what you said you get a pool of candidates and then you get in a room and you discuss and it's like the apprentice and you just choose the best one no i think you're totally right most actually in most most other places in in the economy hiring is literally there's like a one role, you know, interview and people and pick the best Zero at the end. Sum. Technical, you know, per, you know, software companies tend to have, you know, <laughs> more Infinite. demand for engineers than they can fill. And yeah. so, you know, it is more like interview each candidate and if they're over a bar, make the higher decision. But I think that ends up not being conceptually that different, right? You still, I fixed it the other way just because it was a, a little bit conceptually clearer. You are still fundamentally comparing people, right? It's still fundamentally about based people I've seen in the past, is this person, you know, in the top N percent over some bar, you know, that we think they're going to be, you know, great for our company. And so even if it's not, you know, even though the decision for each individual person is, you know, higher, no higher, rather than comparing them to a group, it's still, like, the interview, it's still, I think, best to view the hiring process as a, as, as sort of a, you know, a sorting and comparison process on engineering skill. 
let's get back to to cultural fit. So what happened with Uber? So Uber, you know, they were it seems like their strengths are also their weakness, their ability to ruthlessly grow fast and it seems like they selected for that in what we would classify as the cultural fit, like are you the relentless cutthroat Uber engineer who will get it done at all costs? That's ended up undercutting the company because perhaps they got too much of a concentration of that. Is there some kind of a lesson here either for engineers or for companies who are trying to build their culture properly? Yeah, I think this is actually an example, sort of a really interesting data point and in what we were discussing earlier. So whether whether intentionally, so whether it makes sense to intentionally screen for certain traits. So this gets, again, back to the difference between sort of looking for soft skills. That I, think, I think that definitely matters for everyone. And then, you know, versus intentionally screening for a certain, a certain trait. And I think a, a sort of a, a useful rule of thumb there is that, you know, the difference is that when you're intentionally screening, that means you're going to be, you know, rejecting people who are very strong. Right. So, it, so that's sort of saying, OK, we, there's, there's a, a trait that we're looking for that we care about so much that we're going to reject legitimately great, strong, productive people for not having that trait. And I think Uber is a case of that backfiring. Right. So we see that, you know, you know, Facebook had a select, you know, selected for, you know, you know, productive hackers and Stripe, you know, selects for super friendly people. You know, Uber selected for, you know, aggressive driven, you know, <laughs> you know, burn everything in front of me at all costs to, to achieve my goal, people. And that, you know, both allowed them to scale, to you know, succeed in a really competitive market and overcome, you know, local, you know, tax regulations and do all those things. But it's, you know, come back to bite them pretty hard, you know, years later. And so I think, you know, one way to view this is that Uber messed up by focusing too much on culture fit. Honestly, right? If they, if Uber had focused more just on getting, you know, a diverse cross, you know, a, a set of, you know, friendly people with good soft skills, and not cared so much about selecting for one personality type, you know, one one view is that this problem may not have happened. There's also a distinction between Uber and Facebook because so Facebook. At a certain point, they say, "All right, look, we can stop hacking on everything, right? Like we got the business; it's working. <laughs> Let's just chill out." Like move fast and have stable infrastructure, right? <laughs> they like they they changed their cultural messaging. Uber, I'm not sure if they changed the cultural messaging, like telling people, "All right, listen, like yeah. sorry guys, dr- let's let's drink a little bit less, let's not be so aggressive." These are perhaps like cultural characteristics that are harder for people to change. Yeah, no, I I, I think you know I, they did not, right? They still very explicitly. As of you know, a number of months ago, they still very explicitly, sort of, tell their employees to you know, <laughs> be very aggressive, and and at least until very recently was was still an explicit part of their culture. You think the jury's still out there? Like maybe that culture could be useful again if they get into flying cars. You know, there's like lots of regulations around what can you do in the skies. Like maybe that will be useful again when the, when like maybe first mover. And also, like personally, I haven't stopped using Uber, so it. I mean, maybe the jury's still out on you know whether or not this company is is really so stricken with with issues. I mean, are, are, is it? Do you think it's has have we given this case study enough time to bear out whether or not this was a mistake to, to create this kind of culture? Well, I, I believe the what the, there was an I read an article last week. I believe they they grew. Substantially, I believe more than Lyft last quarter. So they, you know, in the short term, they still appear to be winning in their space. I think there's some danger that we're being a little bit too <laughs> cosmic and too broad in what we're, you know, in, in the analysis here, right? There's, there's okay. some, you know, right. these specific issues, right, are, you know, you know, sexual harassment. Uh, <laughs> That's true. And and and, and true. you know, some other yeah. specific, you know, bad things that executives right, right, did, right, right. right? So there's certainly a scenario where Uber had the aggressive culture and just like <laughs> cared more about, you know, firing people who were sexual harassers and like didn't right. make a few problematic decisions. And in that scenario, maybe they would, you know, still have the aggressive culture but have avoided these problems. Right. And also, actually, that framing it that way. Like maybe Uber can ameliorate the culture just like Facebook ameliorated the culture to stability. Maybe if you fire the bad apples, you create some examples out of people, some scapegoats, 
you can retain the aggression of the culture, the unique aggression, and find a way to hone that aggression without having the costs of sexual harassment. Yeah. I don't know. If I had to bet, I would. I guess I would still bet in their success. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, so you know, a couple other things I was finding when uh, doing research, preparing for this episode, just thinking more about Triple I mean, this is the third interview I've done with you, and I'm still kind of understanding what the company does or what the larger mission is. And uh, you know, one thing I'm I'm trying to understand is, are you like, are you planning to scale to other verticals? And do you think that this, these kinds of hiring biases, whether we're talking about culture or we're talking about technical aspects, do these extend to other domains such as law or accounting, things like that? Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. I think there. I, I don't know about. I, I, yeah, I don't know about. I, I don't have much experience with law or accounting specifically, but I think that they these sort of problems and biases are actually worse in most other fields. So you know, this gets you know, we're lucky in that programming interviews you know are still you know three quarters skill assessments, right? So there's a chance for someone to come in and sort of you know blow away on the skill assessment and overrule a lot of the other stuff. You know, I, I have, you know, I have some friends who are teachers. Uh, if you look at how teachers are hired, <laughs> you know, it's it's 80%, 80% culture fit, 80% communication ability, you know, 80% credentials. So that, that is 80% of some of those things. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, I think I think there is actually a huge need for just careful data-driven improvement of the hiring process across the entire economy. So, you know, we're we're pretty laser focused on, on engineering right now because we are engineers and we understand it and it's a big enough market and a big enough problem that, you know, it can keep us busy for a, a great while. But, you know, if in some hypothetical extreme success case, yeah, I would love to sort of expand this to you know, everything. Hmm. So much of this data gathering seems like you're figuring out a way to provide structure to unstructured data because... I walk into an interview at a company, so like Google, right? Like I did an interview with Google three or four years ago, and you know Google is as sophisticated as it gets when it comes to hiring, and their idea of a data-driven hiring process is like at the end of the hiring, the person like writes down some stuff like on paper, yeah. or like maybe they're typing throughout the, the interview, but it, it's, even then it seems like the data is not very well-structured. How do you provide structure? I mean, it seems like the best way, and this is like pretty far flung, would be you record every element of the interview and then you like put it into a neural net and like have yeah. the neural net like spit something out at the end. And like that, that's, that sounds Orwellian to some people, but I would actually be like, yeah, that's a, let's do well, that. That's kind of, well, that's our goal basically. I, I don't actually think Google quite deserves the reputation, incidentally. So they, like one thing they have not done, at least they have not discussed publicly in any any way is false negative studies right so it's like careful analysis of people who are not hired and like maybe some study if they could have been good so like google google definitely moved the bar right but but, but they still you know they have a semi standardized process but individual inter, in, in, you know engineers interviewers are, can still come up with their own questions um right and they still have a culture where they want <laughs> using the word culture they still have a sort of system where they want you know the majority of engineers to be to be to be interviewing you know very you know very part time and so in that scenario, in that setup, it's, you know, just nearly impossible to really be rigorous about making sure that everyone's being asked the same question and rigorous about, about you know, experimenting with the data recording. And so like what we're doing here is we have a small group, you know, of people who basically, you know, I, I <laughs> until recently was one of them, people who basically interview full time. And so what that means is that, you know, we, we have weekly meetings where we discuss you know what we're evaluating and discuss making changes and just basically test okay we're going to evaluate this 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 we're going to record this trait for the next 3 months and then go back and see if it correlates with you know outcomes at companies and yeah it's really hard it's a it's a this extremely messy complicated process how people you know I mean people have all kinds of different strengths and weaknesses and skills we we spend a lot of energy to f- sort of experimenting with what are the, what are the concrete things we can record that are predictive of of who will do well at companies hmm. Yeah, I know we're drawing to a close, but what are some of those things? Like, what are some of the stats or the data points that you've started to track? Like things that you can eventually plug into the neural net. So the simplest ones, and we've actually found these to be some of the most most predictive, is just concrete measures of progress. So give a person a problem, and 
again, so you know, per earlier discussion, right? Making it a problem that's more sort of a series of steps rather than a one leap of insight. Spell it out clearly, and then just measure how far they get during a during a, a period of time. And there are obvious flaws to that, right? There's some people who go slower and are like more careful. Um, and so you need to have some sort of, you know, we, we like having like paired net metrics, right? So one, one metrics that's a raw measure of how far they got. Um, and then a second measure that's a measure of, you know, for example, process quality. And we also like uh, recording subjective numbers and objective numbers. So an objective measure of quality, right, will be, you know, did they write tests? Did they, you know, you know, create constants of, you know, to, 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 to you know, you know, record these values? Did they generalize the problem such that, you know, this, you know, aspect can be changed and it will still work. Uh, so it's a long list of things like that. We should record, you know, yes, no, for the, the, these things. did they do these things? Mm. And we're expressing some judgment, right? Because there, there are some great programmers who might not do some of those things. But in balance, we find that people who run a better process get more check marks than people who don't. So that's the sort of the, the objective measure of code quality. The objective measure of progress is just, you know, how many of these tests passed within <laughs> the time they were working. Mm. And then we have also to, to, to compare, we have a subjective measure of quality. So do I, the interviewer, feel like they ran a good professional process after I watched the program for an hour? Mm. And do I, the interviewer, feel like they're productive after I watched the program for an hour? Mm. And then we have those four different numbers that we, you know, can plug into. So for now, we don't have enough. This, our data is laboriously gathered, you know, one interview at a time. And so, you know, we're not using big, complicated, you know, multi-layer neural nets. We're using, you know, simple linear models, but we can still plug this in and say, okay, do these things correlate with, you know, are candidates doing well? And what we found actually is that so far, the objective measures outperform the subjective nearly universally, um, which is pretty interesting. Hmm. Hmm. That's really promising. Yeah, it is. Okay. Well, I'm excited as always to talk to you and I'm you know I've got my eye on triple bite I I look forward to doing more shows as you guys discover more I mean it's it's so fun to watch because you're attacking this area that's like basically entirely superstition and just like <laughs> gradually dissecting out what is bs and it's just so fun to watch <laughs> well it's 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 usually fun to do except for except for the Countless hours I spent in interviews, but but yeah. other than that, it's very fun to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm sure you probably learned a lot about human psychology in those interviews. Yeah. Just people are people are so diverse. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Cool. Well. Well. Thanks, Almond. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Jeff.